Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Future Cities. I'm your host, Stephen Elser. It's been a few months since I've actually led an episode for the podcast, so I'll reintroduce myself for any new listeners out there. I'm an Environmental Life Sciences PhD candidate at Arizona State University. In my research, I use a combination of quantitative and qualitative methods to understand benefits that people get from various forms of urban ecological infrastructure. To get the lowdown on what exactly I mean by urban ecological infrastructure, I'd encourage you to check out our previous episode entitled The Many Names of Urban Nature, and listen to my conversation with Dr. Dan Childers of the Central Arizona Phoenix Long-Term Ecological Research Project. All right, that's enough about me. The COVID-19 pandemic has upended so many aspects of our lives, from the ways we socialize, the ways and places where we spend our free time, and the ways in which we work. Here in the United States, we're starting to see a transition back to some state of normal, though I use that term loosely. Mask mandates are being lifted, restaurants and theaters are reopening at full capacity, and many schools returned to in-person learning. So, will everything in our cities return to a pre-pandemic state with these reversals in policy? Or are some aspects of city life permanently changed? This month, we'll be discussing potential long-term implications of the COVID-19 pandemic on cities. In particular, we'll discuss implications for transportation and sustained shifts in remote work. Our guests today are Drs. Laura Shul and Carla Roddy. Dr. Shul is the CEO of Streetlight Data, and Dr. Roddy is a professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he directs the MIT Sensible City Lab. As some additional context, this conversation was recorded back in late March of 2021, so things have changed quite a bit in the United States in particular with respect to vaccine availability. Okay, without further ado, let's get to the conversation. All right, Um, I'm Laura Shule. I'm the CEO of Streetlight Data. Uh, Before I was CEO of Streetlight Data, I was getting a PhD at UC Berkeley in the Energy and Resources Group, um, where Streetlight came out of that PhD work. Um, And before that, I actually have an undergrad in literature uh, from Yale, which is less related to my current world than the energy and resources PhD. I've also worked in the nonprofit sector at Rocky Mountain Institution, Rocky Mountain Institute, as well as the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, (laughs) Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, both working on vehicle electrification. Very cool. Thank you. And uh, could you uh, give us just a brief sort of rundown about what streetlight data is? Sure. So Streetlight Data is a transportation software company. We process data that comes from all sorts of things that move, such as smartphones and connected cars and connected trucks, as well as sensors that are embedded in our transportation infrastructure. And we merge all that data together and turn it into actionable, useful analytics to help people make better decisions about transportation infrastructure and transportation policy broadly. So we provide a tool that allows a transportation professional to log in if they have an account, and look up answers to transportation questions as easily as you might look up an answer to a question in Wikipedia. Um, And that tool is used by professionals who are doing things from planning $2 billion highway expansions to deciding if there should be a stoplight on 2nd and Main and 3rd and Main and should it have a left turn signal or people trying to assess what the right policy is for their city in a post-COVID world or in a world where they wanna try to facilitate more biking and everything in between. Awesome, thanks so much, Laura. Uh, Carlo, could you introduce yourself? 
Sure, thank you, Stephen. Um, Carlo Ratti, I'm, I teach at MIT with run a place called Sensible City Lab, um, and also the design office Carlo Ratti Society based in New York in, uh, and in Italy, in Turin, Italy. And so what we are passionate about is cities. Um, we, you know, cities uh, are only 2% of the surface of the planet, but they are 80% of uh, CO2 emissions. And, and so we want to make cities uh, more efficient and uh, with a better quality of life for people. And we do that through design with our design office and at the lab uh, through research. Perfect. So I was wondering, could I just hear from both of you, uh, how did you get interested uh, in working in cities to begin with? For me, it was very haphazard and accidental. Um, I got interested in transportation generally because I thought it was a part of uh, climate change mitigation that I saw the least work going on. I saw a lot of work going on in renewable energy and building efficiency, but I thought maybe transportation wasn't getting enough attention. So I got interested in transportation and I thought my path would be about facilitating vehicle electrification. Um, and so I started working on deploying EV charging stations and how you would do that in a data-driven way. And in the process of doing that, I got a little exposure to the fact that it's not that we don't plan EV charging in a data-driven way. We don't plan much in a data-driven way at all. Um, and all of transportation infrastructure, which has far more of an impact on carbon emissions than just EV charging stations, all of it needs support and needs transformation. So I, I came into it from a very narrow place of just looking at electric cars and had my eyes opened to the broader, uh, more exciting challenge and need. Yeah, and, and it was quite similar for me as well. You know, I started with uh, with engineering and then from engineering, I moved to, to architecture. But in the meanwhile, I also did quite a bit of computer science. And, um, and the combination of those naturally led to this new space that's uh, opening up today, where it's been opening up over the, over the past decade, which is uh, smart cities. Uh, we like to call them more like sensible cities, you know, a city that's able to sense, but also sensible. But anyway, it's about the convergence of digital and physical. And, and hence, you know, you need to manage both the world of data and the world of, um, of space and of architecture. And, um, and that, that's how, you know, how the dots lined up for me. Mm -hmm. Today, we're going to be talking a lot about how the COVID-19 pandemic has sort of changed the ways... Uh, in which we do the work that we do in cities, as well as just the way that we live our lives. Uh, so for uh, Carlo, could you uh, maybe share with us uh, how you would compare and contrast the COVID-19 pandemic with other disruptive events that cities have experienced in the past? Sure, you know, cities have gone through many, many pandemics and even more devastating pandemics than, uh, than the present one. If you think about the 14th century, for instance, you know, Venice and many European cities lose over 50% of their population because of the Black Death. And still, you know, over, over the years, we, we went back to cities and, you know, we, we had social distancing. Social, social distancing has happened many times in the past. But basically, you know, the, the magnetic force that, uh, that brings us together in cities has always been stronger than pandemics and wars and many other, uh, other devastating uh, conditions in the past. So I would say, you know, from this point of view, what we're living through today is something that cities have been living through many times in their 10,000-year history. I think what is different today, probably, and, you know, it's different today, it would have been different just five or 10 years ago, is that because of connectivity everywhere and because of, uh, you know, 
call it Zoom, like we're recording this on Zoom or Teams or, or other software. So somehow this pandemic was different because it forces us to um, accelerating into a new way of doing work and connecting digitally. So somehow this would not happen again just five years ago or, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, for sure, but also just a few years ago. And, um, and that is, uh, I think, very interesting because I don't think we'll go back to the previous way of working. I think we'll keep a lot of this with the flexibility it entails in our lives. Yeah. So as you've alluded to, you know, a lot of people, myself included, have shifted to working entirely from home or some other space other than their employer's office. And that sustained remote work is uh, really impacting the way that Americans and other people across the world uh, and their expectations of where they can work. Uh, so for Laura, I was hoping that you could tell us uh, what are the data really actually showing us about what's actually happening? So have these changes in how people work resulted in observable changes in transportation and mobility? A little bit, but not as much as I think the narrative that's in a lot of the press and conversations would indicate. Um, so I think the, the main nuance that's really important in conversations like this, uh, conversations created by people like us, is that actually most people can't permanently work from home. Um, it, is, it is constrained to a very specific type of job that is not the majority job. And I should say I'm speaking largely from a Canadian and American perspective, because that's where I have the most data. So you know, bracket everything with that. But in, in North America, um, it's actually not most people who can work from home. Uh, I can, uh, y'all can, but it's, it's a limited population. So the first thing we saw when we started looking at data um, as the pandemic started is in counties where the job mix had very low uh, white collar type of work, counties that rely on forestry or agriculture or um, uh, healthcare, of course, we saw almost no drop in vehicle miles traveled. And when we correlated change to vehicle miles traveled with job mix, it was very clear that some counties in America were experiencing this huge shift in job-related travel and others aren't. Um, so that's, that's one interesting trend because what it, it speaks to is a more and more bifurcating world um, where we have lots of different realities that exist at different ends of the economic spectrum. And one of those is more clearly after this pandemic the transportation world we experience. I think the other factor we've seen very clearly is that is there is a demonstrable, uh, what we call rebound effect, which is people who are not commuting are driving more for other reasons, even during the pandemic when lots of your other activities like dining out or I don't know, going to gymnastics practice are no longer or haven't been available. VMT is not down as much as it would indicate if people had just cut out their work travel and weren't taking extra trips. So we also see a rebound effect. But what's interesting about that rebound effect is that it's happening in different patterns than the commute. It happens more often in the midday, that extra driving. It happens not in the dense corridors shooting people into and out of the city center, but is more spread out across the city. It's happening more around recreational areas. So what we're seeing, and Carlo used the term flexibility, I think that's really it. We're seeing people who can take advantage of this having not necessarily much less transportation, a little less transportation, which is good for carbon, but they are, they're taking advantage of that flexibility and they're doing other things with their day because people fundamentally, I definitely can speak for myself, do not actually want to sit in their house all day. Um, but not having the, the, the 
tiredness of that commute opens up new possibilities. And if we can use those new possibilities in ways that are exciting for, you know, civil harmony and connectedness, that that can be a really exciting thing to contemplate for the future. Yeah, for sure. That's that's really interesting hearing those those patterns that you described. Uh, you, you mentioned um, that you've seen some amount of patterns with people driving more towards like recreation areas. And I know that was a, a very that, that was a, a popular narrative that I heard, especially early on in the pandemic, that a lot of people were now just going to like city parks or nearby hiking areas in much larger numbers than were uh, previously being seen in part because other things are closed and they were able to still do something outdoors in those sorts of spaces. So mm-hmm. you're saying that is, that is something that, that you have observed? Yes, definitely. And certainly there's a weather impact. Like we saw the biggest increases in um, active transportation. So biking and walking, including just for fun or for exercise are in what I would consider more pleasant climates to do it. And in months where it's more pleasant to do so. So, you know, right now, or, you know, January in Michigan. I don't know, maybe those, those people actually really do like to go outside. But you see a weather impact, but generally, yes, we did see a huge uptick in recreational biking and walking. Um, and that is great for people's health. And also I think exposes people to biking and walking. And maybe once we can go to more places, they might be more likely to take that mode of transportation. So I hope it was a bit of a gateway drug into new ways of moving. Okay, question for Carlo. How do you see offices where remote work is possible and cities more generally changing to accommodate this partial shift to remote to more remote work that we've seen? Yes, um, there's certainly going to be a, a change. You know, Laura was saying we what we were saying before. You know, we are going to to, to lead more flexible lives. Um, and uh, I personally think you know the flexibility comes from the fact that we don't need to go to the office exactly at whatever, 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. and you know, commute during rush hours. Uh, so <clears throat> that flexibility means that most likely we'll spend overall less time in the office. You know, we, we might do some Zoom calls in the morning and go in the middle of the day when there's less traffic or, or similar things. So as uh, a result of this, um, and especially if companies are going like you know, they're saying today to use offices like in-person working like 50% of the week or so, two plus three or three plus two, today's smart working, today's in, in the office or vice versa. Um, and then if that is the case, most likely we're going to see a downsizing of the office, but more importantly, a redesign of the office. So we need to rethink the office so that basically if we spend less time there, we have more interaction with other people. And actually, one of the things we've been doing is, uh, is look at what happened in the MIT campus because of the pandemic as soon as we stopped meeting in physical space. And what you see is that if you only meet digitally, kind of your social networks deteriorate. So some of the weak ties, the weak connection, the weak links, some of the serendipity that comes from sharing the same space disappears. And, uh, and that is what we need to build back, back better uh, when, we, when the pandemic is over. So somehow I think we, there's a very exciting challenge is how do we redesign offices so that uh, we could spend less time in them, but the time we spend, every minute we spend, actually can help us build new connections and, uh, and compensate for some of the, 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 kind of the limitations of digital interactions. Yeah, I think that is really important to be able to design them to, to facilitate better connections. Um, so I was wondering, um, for both of you, how likely do you think that remote work will persist 
uh, as a pretty commonplace uh, measure for, again, uh, sort of jobs that can allow it uh, once the pandemic is over? Oh, it will persist for the jobs that can allow it because, you know, I'm also a CEO of a hundred person company where everyone clearly can work remotely. So we are just like Carlos talking about MIT as the example, like we are living our own example. Um, I think I just strongly agree with everything that Carlos said. It will persist, but it will not persist in a hundred percent work from home way because of that social deterioration. So I think we're going to see an uptick in a three, two type schedule. I also think we're going to see an uptick um, in a model that some all remote companies have done before, in particular IBM, um, and a lot of remote sales teams, including Streetlights, have done for you know a decade, which is you have more internal conferences, where like on a very regular sort of quarterly or every other monthly basis, you are actually in lieu of spending your money on real estate and the office and the commute, you're like getting everyone together in some central location. Um, which might mean flying everyone to Denver. So there's some interesting questions about the carbon impact of that. Um, but I see that as a big modality of work because the other trend we're seeing is people moving because of COVID. Um, and the idea of being forced to live in a city to go into some office when you clearly have successfully worked remotely for a year and you don't wanna move to that city, especially a really expensive city, that's gonna be very hard to overcome. So it's not just working from home three, two, but we also see working from home like in Utah even though your employer may be in San Francisco. Yeah, totally. I, I completely agree with Laura. Yeah, great. I, I, sure, I sure hope so that uh, that remote working persists. I think as we've discussed so far, it adds so much flexibility to uh, to workers' lives to not need to spend, you know, however many minutes or hours commuting every day um, and, you know, potentially also can open up avenues of, of designing our urban spaces in a, in a bit of a different way that will, you know, allow that flexibility to manifest itself in, in new and exciting ways that can facilitate, um, you know, healthier and more happy communities. Because I know, if, at least in, in, in the way that I'm sort of conceptualizing it, if we have, you know, fewer people, you know, commuting every day at the same times um, to and from work that, you know, maybe we'd see fewer cars on the road. Although I guess from what you're saying, Laura, that hasn't been, uh, or at least the, the trend hasn't been extremely strong and people are driving sort of different ways. But if there are fewer cars on the road, you can maybe think of, okay, well, we don't need as many roads and we can redesign those spaces to be more human centered. And that can do a lot of really good things for communities. Yeah, I think that would be great, but I think that requires a lot. I'm nervous about the counterfactual. So I'm nervous that what we've seen is that because there isn't as much congestion, the main incentive to take transit or to live closer is gone away. Um, and so we see an uptick, you know, if it only, when I lived in Oakland and commuted to San Francisco, if I drove at 2 a.m., which I have done to the office, it would take me, you know, 13 minutes. If I drive at 8 a.m. in the morning, it takes me 45 to an hour. Um, and if it always takes you 13 minutes, all of a sudden I've lost, you know, a lot of my incentive to take transit or to take the bus and things like that. So there's an interesting study out of LA that we worked on that is showing real fear that on a vehicle miles traveled perspective, this could be sort of a wash. So from a carbon perspective, this is sort of a wash, um, even though congestion has gotten a little better. So I have nerves that I'm, I'm nervous that we'll see some negative consequences from this um, and that it will take a lot of political will um, to put roads on diet as a result of this. I do hope, 
And I have seen in some of the political conversations we're a part of that it's reducing the drive to add lanes, which is always something we're battling against as environmentalists. So I think it can help in that way, perhaps. Um, but it may, I'm very nervous about the reduction in congestion. Congestion is one of our best weapons uh, to create change in transportation and city planning. Well, well, here, however, I, I, I would jump in and say, you know, I, I think there's probably other ways we can achieve it without all the kind of the negatives of congestion, you know, the pollution that comes with it and all the wasted time. So somehow we could think about like dynamic road pricing could be another way to make sure that people take mass transit. Um, at the same time, what, uh, what we are discussing seems to, reminds me of a, a, a hypothesis that, um, that has been discussed a lot in transportation, which is called the Marchetti hypothesis. And the idea is that basically in humans, <clears throat> well, humans will kind of travel around one hour per day, or you, know, you can have a distribution of how, how much we travel. Basically, that's a, a travel budget, which is a constant travel budget. And so simply, if we can move faster, if we, if we got a new highway, if we got less congestion, they will simply move further away. And uh, because, you know, because of that, we, we, we make our decision based on the time it takes. And so basically, if uh, the time is, uh, we, we need less time because of less congestion, then we can move further away in the city. We have more sprawl and more suburbia. So somehow this seems to be just a, a kind of a validation of what we've seen during the pandemic of this um, Marchetti law. Uh, I think, however, the best way to, to avoid more sprawl or to avoid you know, just doing a lot of new greenfield developments. Uh, that's certainly not good for, for the environment, um, a city that's not compact, a city that, you know, keep on, keeps on sprawling. In order to avoid it, you know, we can probably use other tools, as we were saying a moment ago, you know, uh, just, <clears throat> just uh, uh, road, road pricing, other type of congestion pricing, uh, or, or other limitations without resorting to congestion. Totally. I think that's totally plausible. And I also think this is absolutely proof of the Marchetti hypothesis. I think it's exactly what we're seeing. Um, and I think road pricing is good, but I also think that in general, what we also might be seeing in some of the cities is a real shift in real estate prices. And that can be a huge incentive towards densification um, because there's a lot of commercial offices that unfortunately usually look like it has to be a commercial office. But if we can find some creative repurposing of that or creative repurposing of their parking lots, I think it could be some really exciting and positive uh, outcomes. So I am hopeful. But it, I, I also think that what we might see is just a very different reality play out in different cities within even the same country, just depending on the political will and the choices made um, by that metro or by that city or by that state, um, which can create these from an academic perspective, interesting natural studies. But finally, on the, on the question of, is this proving that hypothesis, we won't really know till the rest of the economy is opened back up, how much of this is about behavioral shift from work from home and how much of it is about the fact that kids are also home from school and restaurants are in many places shuttered and all these other things are going on. So we can't, the signal isn't clear enough to say something definitive about work from home yet. Um, so I think the main thing we have to do is also just keep on measuring this stuff. Yeah, for sure. And I think uh, your comment about how, you know, we're going to see this play out differently in different cities, depending on, you know, the political will or whatever else, what other elements of context exist in those cities leads in pretty nicely to the next question that I have for you too, which is sort of what characteristics of a city, whether that be its physical configuration, its built environments, or even its political will can help boost some of the work from home 
momentum that we've seen and uh, and some of the uh, other sort of transportation transformations that, uh, that we're talking about. Yeah, and uh, here I think it would be interesting to talk about a, a concept which has been, uh, has been really popular since the beginning of the pandemic, which is a so-called 15-minute city. And the idea of the 15-minute city is a city where within a 15-minute radius, I mean, there could be 15 minutes by walking or by biking, then you have most of the things you need. And then, you know, if we're able to do it, now bear in mind, you know, a city uh, is never a totally 100% a 15-minute city, otherwise it would be a village. But if we're able to do it, to build a city where we find within a 15-minute radius most of the things we need, <clears throat> then I think we can have neighborhoods that are much more conducive to working from home in the ability to, to again, uh, uh, explore by foot the neighborhood, to do the things we need to do apart from work uh, during the day, and, uh, and organize the whole city in a similar, in a, in a fractal way. So basically you've got a 15-minute uh, neighborhood and districts, and then you know they aggregate into then a bigger center and, uh, and so on. So, so this idea of the 15-minute city, I think, could help us a lot. Uh, in order to have that flexibility, to continue with that flexibility, also when COVID is over. Yeah, I think the 15-minute city is a very powerful um, framework and also resonates clearly with a lot of different stakeholders. So I like it a lot and thinking about that a lot as an organizing principle. Um, but I also think that what we've seen in America is concepts of the 15-minute city not jiving with the match between jobs that are available um, and jobs that the people in that particular place can do or want to do. And so I think that working from home, again, solves that problem for thought workers like me. But if it doesn't solve that problem for people who want to work in service jobs like restaurants or want to work in manufacturing or other um, jobs where it's, it's just not feasible to think about a work from home framework, we, we have to be very thoughtful about job mix because some of those industries, let's just take a factory, for example, like it doesn't work well to have the factory distributed in each 15 minute neighborhood within a large city. So I think we have to, we have to do some, some thinking around that to think about the full mix of what we need our society to create. Um, but I think starting from that framework is, is definitely the most compelling one I know of. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and there's um, this kind of broader issue that, uh, of course, you know, we talk about the remote working. A lot of professions, you know, represented here on the panel, uh, we can do it. Uh, but certainly, there's a new divide in society, and the divide wow. is between the people who can actually who have the flexibility, who can work remotely. But a lot of people, you know, it's people in <clears throat> on the factory floor, but also people who do delivery for Amazon or many other jobs, and they don't have that flexibility. It's almost like a new divide, and we need to be very, very attentive to that when we plan new cities and see how yeah. we can bridge it. Yeah, so I really like this idea of the 15-minute city, and as you mentioned, Laura, it's it's a pretty popular one among uh, you know practitioners as well as community members, and, and in our scenario workshops and our research network, the idea of 15-minute cities has, has come up as like something that people want, you know, in the year 2080. So I was wondering, like, what 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 do you think are the sorts of changes and pressures that like need to be applied uh, now or in the near future to really make that sort of change to 15 minute cities, you know, where appropriate actually occur? I think it is severely about cost of housing in America. Like I think until we have a real framework for how the best places don't immediately become the most expensive. 
um, I don't think we're going to achieve it. So I think thinking about land value um, and systemic commitment to mixed cost housing that is not just about dumping subsidies and sort of as a Band-Aid solution, I think that is the most important thing we need to figure out. And I do not know the answers to that, um, that one. But on top of that, I also think it is about um, flex infrastructure flexibility. So in the, in the past, I don't know, 100 years of urban planning, and certainly in the past 30 years of urban planning, we think about making 20-year plans and 40-year plans. And the notion that we can plan with specificity that far out I think, I hope it's increasingly apparent that that's nuts. So what we have to plan for is the fact that we don't know what's coming next year, certainly not in 20 years and certainly not in 40 years. Um, so we need to think about infrastructure that has flexibility built in. And flexibility can be as simple as the concept that we could paint a lane and call it a lane for just biking and pedestrians. That's flexible infrastructure. Um, and then there's sort of more technologically sophisticated forms of flexible infrastructure. So I think cost of housing and building an infrastructure and planning framework that has changed assumed, not as this horrible, scary, disruptive thing. Yeah, I think the, the as you mentioned, flexible infrastructure is so, so important. And that's one of the things that I sort of study in my in my research is green infrastructure. And, you know, one of the main benefits that, you know, people at when people are advocating for green infrastructure is that it's flexible. It provides a wide variety of services, whereas a more traditional gray infrastructure solution provides like one or two benefits, and that's pretty much the only thing that it can do. Whereas a like a park or a bioswale or something like that, it helps cool down the local environment. It helps regulate stormwater. It provides nice aesthetic value to a place. It cleans the air to some amount. So yeah, I think what you're saying about flexibility and in infrastructure is so so important to to helping achieve this. Mm -hmm. And uh, Car Carlo, it looked like you had something to say. Um, yeah, I think paradoxically, the, the, what's happening with the pandemic it could be a repricing of uh, real estate uh, assets, especially offices. And so that could actually give us some more flexibility uh, to play with. Again, what was mentioned before, if we need to convert some office buildings into apartments and so on, I think that could help us uh, rethink a bit the structure of our cities and you know, make them more similar to 15-minute cities. Great. Um... So for uh, Laura, I was hoping that you could uh, share how your company uses big data to help promote equitable transformation outcomes, or tra excuse me, transportation outcomes in cities, and how you see the most recent trends um, over the past year uh, impacting social and economic equity in transportation going forward. Sure. So um, one of the most fundamental decision Streetlight made is that we will always enable um, analysis of the demographics of who is moving, not just where people live. So a simplistic way to think about equitable transportation is, oh, we made some transportation investments in the low-income neighborhoods and also in the high-income neighborhoods. But COVID aside, generally people do not stay in their neighborhood all the whole time. So an investment that, say, makes it faster to have a transit connection um, for low-income workers who want access to better-paying jobs, that could be a far more powerful equity-enhancing investment, even if it's a mile away. You know, most of the money is spent not inside the neighborhood in question. So we provide this very new set of facts, which is what are the demographics of where people go, 
and it is always included in all of our subscriptions. So we want to have no barriers to using it so people can think about who they're affecting, not just um, your classic transportation metrics like you know, level of service or whatever. Now, the problem is, despite the fact that it's free on top of what people have bought, very few of our customers historically have used it because it, they don't, nobody at their job is telling them they have to think about this stuff. So we've also started really developing case studies to try to help guide people about how you put this knowledge to work. And we've had some really cool things that our customers have done as a result. Um, so uh, for example, um, to bring it back to EV charging, uh, we had a series of customers in California who got a grant, I think it was from the CEC, Energy Commission, to subsidize electric vehicle charging stations in their cities, but in a way that gave equitable access to middle and low income people who might want to electrify, not just high income Tesla drivers. Um, so we had to do a study that said, where do middle and low income people who are residents of this city go when they're not at home, because we're not talking about home charging right now, and when they have you know more than 40 miles left to drive where they might really need to recharge um, and where there's not already a charging station, which seems like a simple question to ask, but is, is impossible to answer without big data. So that's an example of trying to do equity informed transportation planning, um, which, is, which is new and different and only available because of big data. Um, and in terms of um, what, what is happening to transportation equity, um, I unfortunately um, think the pandemic has exacerbated disequity um, because of the fact that I can make as much money and be as productive as I ever was without using transportation because I can work from home and that is not true for a lot of other people. And during the pandemic, um, transit became less frequent in a lot of cities. And unfortunately, I'm afraid that will continue uh, because transit got hammered financially. I hope we can bail it out and get ridership back. So I think in the near term, COVID has exacerbated unequitable trends. Um, I have seen some cool examples. Um, I was talking to some folks uh, at a state DOT and they said one of the things they realized is they can hire more people in the small rural towns in their state to get the benefits of working for the state government and the you know, great benefits that come with it. And that was what they saw as a huge equity sort of rural urban equity benefit of COVID and the, and the rise of work from home. And I actually thought that was one of the best um, examples I'd seen of a really positive equity outcome because um, rural urban job access is a huge problem in most of the world. Great, thank you. That, that, was, a, that was a really great answer. Um, okay, so we're running somewhat low on time. So I'm uh, just gonna start moving towards the end here. Uh, so I guess for both of you, um, I, your work is um, widely applicable to various fields and industries. So I was hoping to just hear from both of you uh, the, the role of collaboration in the work that you do um, with researchers, academic or otherwise, practitioners, other industry leaders, and just uh, share yeah, what, what, how, how you go about collaborating and how important that is for your work. Yeah, collaboration is, <clears throat> is really core to, uh, to studying cities. You know, cities are complex systems. Uh, they need, when, you, when you're thinking about changing a city, about designing a new piece of city, uh, working at the neighborhood level, you really need to put together people from many different disciplines. And, uh, and so at the lab, we got uh, designers, architects, planners, of course, but we got mathematicians, physicists, people studying complex science, and also people from the social sciences. Somehow it's these kind of three vectors, and you know, the vectors, re disciplines related to design, 
and then you've got the hard sciences, the social sciences, all converging uh, in studying the city. Uh, that's not easy. It's not easy because people tend to talk different languages. You need to create a shared culture. But once you manage to do that, then you know there magic happens because really you can look at the problem from different perspective and you got a much better chance. You stand a much better chance to finding a creative and exciting solution. Yeah, I agree. I also think moving out of academia into business um, really like you have no option except to find a collaboration that works for your partner because they pay your bills. So, you know, moving from ideation to, hey, we actually need to build a sustainable technology. It has to make money that has forced collaboration, true collaboration um, and hearing what they need and building something that justifies the cost of it. Um, that's been really powerful. And I did not expect it, you know, eight years ago when I was a PhD student. Um, but now that we're more established, we also have really cool collaborations going with a bunch of different universities um, and nonprofit players in different ways. We give free data to all university researchers and nonprofit researchers who are working within our mission, which is to um, reduce the impacts of climate change and improve transportation, social equity and safety. So we just launched a really cool web page where you can see all the papers written on our data, um, which is called like our university partners page. And we're collaborating with um, National Lab, NREL, as well as some specific universities like University of Washington to develop some new metrics and methodologies that we publish as sort of guidebooks for the industry. Um, and that has been really helpful because a lot of times the academic world can act a little bit as sort of like like the judge, if, if, if big data and, you know, technology for cities was like a singing contest, it's nice to have a judge that sort of weighs in. Um, so the cities feel like they have somebody they can go to to ask their advice. So that's also been a really cool sort of three the triangle of partnership with some of the universities, uh, the cities and us. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, okay. And so you both have really interesting careers and it, and I was wondering just if you could offer any tips or pieces of advice to early career individuals that are maybe trying to get into a position like your own. Um, my piece of advice would be very, very simple is really follow your passion and then, uh, you know, wherever it takes you. And again, you're like Steve Jobs once said, famously said that uh, Stanford's commencement, you know, uh, then it's impossible to, to line up the dots looking forward. But then if you follow your passion, then when you look backwards, the lines, the dots will line up. And, uh, and so I, I would say in my case, um, that was really what I did going from architecture to engineering, from engineering to architecture to computer science. Um, but in the end, you know, that worked out well. So again, somehow, you know, if you follow that, uh, that inner path, then you will see the, the dots line up uh, when you look backwards. Uh -huh. I think that's obviously great advice. I'm a little more tactically. I think one of the reasons Carlo is such a thought leader in his space is not just because he's very smart, but because he's very good at communicating his passion. And I see tons of smart people, especially back in my academic world, who struggle with being an exciting public speaker or writing, you know, you have to write academic papers a certain way, but you should also write about your work and publish your work in more accessible ways that are a little more story oriented. And I think that to me, a critical key of success is not just that we're doing a great job, 
we are doing a great job, but that we communicate it well and get other people excited. I mean, there are so many smart ideas out there and the difference between it really taking off and it just being a good idea that stayed on the shelf is often how well you can communicate it to the people who need to hear about it. So I think if all PhD students did a semester long public speaking course, it would be far more valuable than if they did one more statistics course. Um, <laughs> so that's what I would recommend. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I uh, definitely uh, agree with that statement about there's so many brilliant minds in academia, but they, uh, so many people could really use some more guidance on how to effectively and you know communicate what they, they see as important to other people. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So uh, we've talked a little bit about futures already, and I've mentioned that uh, as a part of this research network, we have these scenario workshops where we envision what the year 2080 will look like in the city where we're working. So uh, I was wondering whether you both could share what your vision is for uh, your city, whether it be where you grew up, whether it be where you work, uh, for the year 2080. Um, I, you know, I prefer not to make predictions. Uh, I, I remember um, I, I once saw a prediction actually done at the beginning of um, or the past century in Boston by the Boston Globe about year life in the year 2000. And if you look at that, you see that, you know, that really everything was wrong. And it's really impossible to predict one, two, three, four, five decades ahead. Uh, but I think what we can do is really work together so we build that future you know the future is uh, the best way to predict the future as alan Kay said is uh, is actually to build it to design it to invent it and uh, and i think that's what we should do so you know, not trying to predict what it will be the future is in our hands it depends on our actions and and so we should start from there mm -hmm. i think so i grew up in richmond virginia where i have uh, just moved back to after a 20-year hiatus um, and Richmond is a classic mid-sized American city, and I live in a wonderful neighborhood called The Fan. And one of the reasons I love this neighborhood is because it is a neighborhood where you have, you interact with other human beings all the time. And so what I hope for in a city 80 years in the future is whatever way it looks, whatever the transportation options are, they are transportation options that facilitate meeting your neighbors or not your neighbors, people from out of town who are visiting or people who are commuting in, whether that is through a shared mass transit, like I might meet on the bus today or by out on the walkways and parkways, whatever it is, um, I want an urban form that facilitates more and more interaction in person and more and more interaction digitally, but doesn't just settle for digital, right? I want the human connection. I want the physicality. I want the bars and the sidewalk cafes and all of those things. So I think there's a lot of ways to make a city like that. Some of it, I think some people say like, oh, we'll just keep everything looking like, you know, the great old European cities. But I don't think that's the only way to get what we want. Um, but I think defining what I want it to be like is the right way to think about how we plan to get what we want. And I also want everybody um, to be more comfortable with change. So if I show up and something's different than it was last year, that's not a cause for concern. That's a cause for me and my community members to say, hey, interesting, let's see how this works. Um, and I think that's part of uh, this, this concept of having a flexible infrastructure and a flexible community mindset, because we're going to have a lot to adapt to uh, over the next 80 years. So we need to get comfortable with that process. Awesome. Thank you so much. So this final uh, segment, uh, I asked you guys ahead of time if you were able to write a haiku 
summarizing, you know, some aspect of the work or the things that you're thinking about. Uh, were you able to, to do that? Mm-hmm. All right. And Carla, were you? I did it. I crowdsourced yes. to my team oh, and we co-wrote. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right. Uh, I can't wait to hear it. All right. Uh, let's, I guess, let, let's start with you, Laura. Let's hear your haiku. Infrastructure, like CO2, lasts 40 years. So let's get it right. Hey, that's great. That's really good. Love it. Thanks. All right, Carlo. Yeah, love it. I <clears throat> love it as well. Well, here's mine. Is sensible city where natural meets digital better way to live? Oh, that's awesome. That's beautiful. Fantastic. All right. I love yeah, I love wrapping up uh <laughs> podcasts with very, very short synthesis of like complex ideas and whatnot. So thank you so much for uh, entertaining me and, uh, and, and playing along. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's, those are all the questions uh, that I have for you. And I know we're coming up on the end of the hour. So I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, so thank you both so much for being on the show. I really, really appreciate you joining us. And it was really fun to talk with you and to, to learn uh, from your perspectives. Thanks a lot, Steven. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. It was fun. The Future Cities Podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, or UREX as we usually refer to it. To learn more about Eurex, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.